But one of the things I had learned the hard way was that I did not want to be an NGO. I did not want to be at the whim of the donors. I did not want to be part of a patriarchal society that serves them to keep people in poverty, to be the sort of PR of the Western world um, that throws money at certain things without looking at the cultural relevance of it. I'd seen age fatigue where people had come in and done pilots, promised the earth and just walked away. I'd met the mothers of of um, people who committed suicide because they put their heart and souls into these projects only to be no funding to come. And I thought, I'm not going to be one of those people. I'm not going to be a biz- a, a, an NGO that has to go and beg for money in America and then be told how to do it. Because for me, this wasn't about me. This was about me and the woman of Africa. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Breaking Out. I'm your host, Jared Lazar. Ever wondered what it takes to step outside of a traditional job or career and chase your dreams? Let's find out. Each week, I'll be interviewing inspiring guests who've done something unconventional and created an interesting, novel, or unusual career for themselves. Starting a business is an incredibly challenging thing to do, but starting a business whose aim is to empower women, bring about social change by alleviating poverty and inequality, and at the same time have a positive impact on the environment? That's another thing entirely. On this episode, I speak to Sarah Collins, the founder of Wonderbag, about how a burning desire to change the world around her led it to founding a multi-million dollar global socially conscious enterprise. In 2018, Wonderbag was named one of Time Magazine's top 50 genius companies, alongside some familiar names like Apple, Amazon, Netflix and SpaceX. Among a slew of other prestigious awards, Seda herself has previously been named one of Fortune Magazine's top 10 most powerful women entrepreneurs and she also won the World Economic Forum's Women of the Decade in Entrepreneurship Award. Seda, I've really been looking forward to chatting to you for, for so long. Thank you so much for coming to the show. How, how are you? Thank you for inviting me, Jared. It's so great to be with you. And um, I'm really good, actually. And um, it's just it's been inspiring talking to you before we went live. So. I'm excited to share my journey with you and um, and hang out. Thank you. So for our listeners, the, the Wonder Bag, um, it's a heat retention slow cooker. But before I do the product and injustice by trying to describe it myself, um, why, why don't I leave it to you to just explain what the product is and, and what it does? Okay, you know, it's always a good way to start is let's get the housekeeping out of the way. So what <laughs> is a wonder bag? <laughs> and it's it's not a wonder bra and it's not put on your head. It is very simply a portable non-electric slow cooker. So as it's a podcast, let's get people to visualize. And right. if you think of a very large pumpkin, 
made out of colorful um, shui shui or African batik fabric. And how it works is you prepare your food as you normally would, and then you bring it to the boil in a saucepan. Um, as, and so you prepare it, you bring it to the boil, and once it's boiling rapidly, and depending on what fuel, what what food you are cooking, um, if it was pup or um, something that needs to be stirred, you do all that for the first ten minutes. So you take your pot off the stove, you put the pot inside the wonder bag, you put the lid on, and you close the wonder bag. Right, and it continues to cook for 8 to 12 hours. Now, um, without using any other form of electricity. So the concept is quite hard for people to understand, but it's actually extremely simple. Is If you think about if you are going out into the cold, into the snow or in winter, you put a jacket on to keep your body temperature in. and the Wonder Bag is a jacket for a pot. So it keeps right. it at cooking temperature above the, the cooking, um, the regulated degrees that is required for cooking. So right. when you think about putting flame into a pot, all it's doing is coming out the top. So we're keeping sure. that heat inside the bag um, and then it will continue to cook for the amount of time required, and you can just leave it there for 12 hours. Right. Now, this, this simple um, heat retention way of cooking is an age-old technology. I did not invent heat retention cooking. What I did was I remembered my grandmother on the farm cooking with a box and cushions, and she used to take the pot off the arga and then put it in this box and we as children were not allowed to go near this box <laughs> but me being me one day she'd gone to have an afternoon nap as you do and <laughs> I snuck in while the, the cook was having his tea and I opened this box and I saw the cushion and in my young mind it all made sense to me and it obviously got lodged in my mind. Right. And, um, and we will continue how it came out of my mind later on. So it is very simply a portable, non-electric slow cooker that is being used in mud huts, in um, Manhattan apartments. It's being used in all different ways across the globe. If you'd like to find out more about how to get involved or to support Wonderbag, stick it on until the end of this episode. And now, back to our interview. The product itself, it's, it's incredible and, and it's um, clearly got you know, a very important use for, for people. But there's so many other facets to this. If we can just focus on the, the I guess, the socioeconomic um, parts of it, you know, I've seen it being said that poverty disproportionately affects women, specifically in, in Africa. How does the, the Wonder Bag alleviate or address some of those issues? 
So, um, Jared, I'm going to tell you some really alarming statistics. And um, you may know them. Some of your listeners may know them. But I probably bet a couple of wonder bags that nobody knows that almost half of humanity still eat off open fires every single day. So almost three and a half billion people eat off an open fire. So if you think about that carefully, that means that between two and four trees are cut down per household every year. It also means that somebody has to, and it's 89% of cooking over fires is done by women, is leading, leaning over a fire, breathing in those fumes. And most often it is a grandmother or a mother who has a baby on her back. So the biggest challenge in our world today, bigger than COVID, bigger than AIDS, malaria, dysentery, poverty, or anything else, is indoor air pollution-related diseases. So those are respiratory diseases, and um, more than 7 million people die annually, and 50% of those are children under the age of five. Wow. So if you just pause for one minute and think about that challenge, that's massive. You know, everybody is talking about um, you know, all these different things that, that are, are, are fundamental, you know, things that need to be solved by businesses or entrepreneurs or by the humanitarian world or whatever. But actually, what is keeping people in poverty is the fact that they have to cook over open fires. And it is traditionally vulnerable communities that are the cycle is perpetuated So we're dealing with two enormous issues here. One is deforestation on the most enormous scale. So you're looking at almost 9 billion trees being cut down every year. 9 billion trees. Wow. You're looking at 7 million deaths and 83% of people who are raped are raped when they are collecting firewood in remote areas. So you know what, Jared, if you ask me, (laughs) what are the biggest challenges that need to be solved? I'd say this is a particularly big one. And, um, and you know, it's, it's been known this, um, the clean cook stove alliance was set up by Hillary Clinton and her team almost 30 years ago. So, People have known and a lot of money has been spent in this space, but nothing has fundamentally shifted. And um, I have, you know, I think people often consider that, that the entrepreneurs that are saving the world's greatest problems come out of Silicon Valley or the solutions come out of MIT or, you know, all these smart universities. And um, and so these these basic like proper world changing challenges are sometimes overlooked. And yeah. um, 
I think my story of where I came from and how I came to take on this challenge um, was so completely contradictory to being um, an MIT graduate or coming out of Silicon Valley or anything like that. It was just kind of, I, 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 it was part of who I was growing up on the farm, understanding about smoke and my friends yeah. always having snotty noses. And, and then as I, I moved you know, later into my life, really analyzing how we were going to equalize the status quo and change the way and the opportunities for women across our beautiful continent of Africa. I realized that we had to address one fundamental problem before anything else could happen. And that was the amount of time that was spent over fires. So that's, that's how I got to, that's really how I got to to take on this challenge. How does this actually change the life of a woman um, in a rural area or peri-urban or urban is that we are giving women back almost four and a half hours a day. So if wow. you had to look, and, and my my what I'm telling you is not based on anecdotal evidence. Wonderbag has become a very data-heavy business. So I'm telling you things that we have learned over the last 14 years through data, through big projects that we run um, across Africa. So I'm not just telling you this because I think this is true. This is what the facts are. So we are able to, once somebody is using a wonder bag, it reduces the amount of time by almost 80%. And traditionally people are spending between four and six hours a day over a fire. So we're giving back, you know, five hours, let's say Mm -hmm. on average a day. Now that's an enormous amount of time where somebody, a woman, um, can become productive either in um, in vegetable gardens, um, which is a big thing that we see right. is, you know, the lack of nutrition in these areas and, and vulnerable communities are really struggling with um, putting a nutritious meal a day on, on the table. So the minute you've got another five hours a day, you are actually going to start looking at the type of food that you're able to to prepare for your family. Um, And that means you can also cook your long cooking beans. You know, beans take six, eight hours on a fire. Suddenly now you can put it in a wonder bag. You're not wasting the money or the firewood. So you're saving. And electricity. I mean, in South Africa, we know the huge issues around electricity. And it's becoming too expensive for people to cook the most nutritious meals, which are our beans and our legumes and and things like that. So suddenly you can bring that to the boil, put it in the Wonder Bag, and you've got, um, and and you can cook those sort of foods. And community vegetable gardens are becoming a huge thing, but they were, predominantly, um, you know, being ignored because people didn't have time. 
Right. And right. also the money saving. You know, you give a woman an extra 300 rand a day from electricity savings, you change mm. that entire economic status of that home. So those are just three simple ways that people's lives are being changed um, by the Wonder Bag. So that's incredible. And something also occurred to me when you mentioned about how the business is becoming um, or, or is so data focused and, and how, you know, all of the, the impact that you that you seeing it's justified by by the data. Just on the environmental aspect of it, um, and you've already mentioned, you know, fuel saving and, and so on. My understanding is that a large part of the business or part of it at least is also focused on um, selling carbon credits. So, you know, where you convert carbon and, and energy saving from, from wonder bags and then sell those on to, to corporates who are looking to offset their emissions. And to that point about, you know, data driving this thing, do you find it easier to convince corporates to buy into the idea of supporting something like this because you can actually see the impact is data and it's quantifiable yeah you know jared i would love to take a, a, a moment on this point to explain uh, what carbon credits are and how i evolved my business from and uh, and started wonderbag actually because this will give some some deep insights, I think, to your listeners. And I think it's a point that is a lot of people really want to understand more about, but there's limited places where you can hear it from a lay person. Right. You know what I mean? Like people love to say, are you an engineer or do you have a PhD in environmental <laughs> science or, you know, all of this stuff. And I'd love to say, actually, yes, I do. But the answers I don't. <laughs> Just I've <laughs> learned it organically, and I think I think that's some, often the best way to be able to explain it to mm -hmm. to people because there is a very there's a huge appetite and curiosity around the Wonder Bag business model. But even more than that, there's a curiosity around what is a carbon credit, and doesn't a carbon credit mean that it's just guilt? So that it means that you can offset. Um, your uh, Pajero or your right. gas guzzling Land Rover and not feel guilty about it. And um, that's the perception of a lot of people, or you can fly on a private jet and offset it, like we saw um, the big scandal with Harry and Meghan and Elton John a couple of years ago. Um, so I'd really like to explain what is a carbon credit and how they were set up and how I got involved. So in 2008, uh, I don't know if you remember, but there was a massive amount of load shedding. I think it was yes. the first time that South Africans really understood the, the dire situation we were in, in terms of uh, energy and right. that we, we had a long way that ESCOM was in trouble. I think it was the first time we understood. Having lived in Africa most of my life, I am... Um, Load shedding wasn't an issue for me because I get to bed when it gets dark and I wake up when it gets light, like the chickens. But um, so this this load shedding thing was going on, and I had this massive internal struggle going on around the community. I was working in seven hundred communities um, 
with eco economic generating opportunities or or sort of say perceived economic generating activities like earthworm farming, vegetable gardening, recycling. I was trying to address the underlying kind of poverty and, and ways that we could empower people across communities. And we were particularly working on um, at an organization called Take Back the Future. And it was an NGO that um, took young people into the wild areas of Africa to sleep under the stars and to really learn about what are our natural resources mm -hmm. and who are our future conservation leaders. And um, having spent 10 years prior to that in the Okavango Delta in community um, building the first community-based concession, I was deeply passionate about people that lived around conservation areas, but particularly about why are our future leaders not having access to the wild areas of Africa and sleeping right. under the stars and, you know, standing under a waterfall and hearing a lion roar. Mm. So, um, but these young people were coming back into abject poverty. And so who, how can you tell somebody that's hungry that they can't um, kill an animal or chop yeah. down a tree to cook their food? So I was looking at the 700 um, different communities and looking at how we could um, make a difference to the, the economic status. And I've always believed that um, unless we fundamentally change the economic opportunities, we will never gain dignity and freedom for women. Um, and therefore that adversely impacts uh, their children and are you know the people who are who are going to be um the leaders of africa so it was at that time i, I was having a real tussle because i was I, I just wasn't actually getting anywhere right. other than spending this amazingly exciting times with young people <laughs> walking across the game reserves of of, of um of southern africa I just wasn't seeing that economic shift. And so when load shedding happened, I thought we've got to do something. And that's when I remembered about that lemon box that was in Grand's kitchen. And I thought, but hang on, why could Grand do that in the early 70s, but we can't do it now? Right, right, right. And that's where the vision of the Wonder Bag came to me and this um, heat retention cooking. But one of the things I had learned the hard way was that I did not want to be an NGO. I did not want to be at the whim of the donors. Right. I did not want to be part of a patriarchal society that serves them to keep people in poverty to be the sort of PR of the Western world um, that throws money at certain things without looking at the cultural relevance of it. I'd seen aid fatigue where people had come in and done pilots, promised the earth and just walked mm -hmm. away. I'd met the mothers of, of um, people who committed suicide because they put their hearts and souls 
into these projects only to be no funding to come. And I thought, I'm not going to be one of those people. I'm yeah. not going to be a biz, a, a, an NGO that has to go and beg for money in America and then be told how to do it. Because for me, this wasn't about me. This was about me and the woman of Africa. Right. And I learned about carbon credits. And I started to study it. And um, my sister was living in London at the time. And I asked her what she knew. So she started to, to have a look at it. And basically, the carbon and green financing was started by the World Bank about the concept was about, I would say, 25 or 35 years ago. I can't, I'm not going to be exact. But so the World Bank looked at this and said, the in, people who are emitting the most amount of carbon are not the people that are going to suffer the most. The people that are going to be the most impacted by global warming are the people that are living well below the um, the acceptable poverty levels. So what we're seeing, and we're seeing that playing out right now with famines, mm -hmm. with fires, with um, the locusts in East Africa. I mean, you name it, we are seeing the people that are most affected by climate change are actually the people that are living in rural Africa, India, Asia. You know, right. So it is the developing world that are getting hammered most and are unable to recover from global warming. So the concept was put together that, that the communities most affected should benefit from the generation of carbon credits. And that was the, the thinking behind it. However, in 2008, when I started to look at it, what I found is that the carbon credits that were being generated were being generated by massive wind farms, biomass, right. and, and, and all by big businessmen in, in China and India. And there was no community. There was very mm -hmm. small pockets of small community projects, but nothing that was scaling. And I thought, but hold on, I'm working with the people most affected by climate change. Why can I not get carbon credits for Wonder Bay? And I can tell you, people said to me, I was absolutely insane. There was no way it was going to happen. Wow. Anyway, very luckily, my sister managed to um, uh, help me. And we got a meeting with um, JP Morgan Bank, who had a carbon origination business. And I'd spent four months in um, Orange Farm outside Joburg, okay. measuring every day, a hundred homes. We measured how much firewood they used and they'd used for a month before we put Wonder Bags in. And then how much savings of firewood, of electricity, of charcoal. And I literally did all of this in a notebook. And I had volunteers and people who helped me do this. And I lived there for four months measuring. So I took all these scrappy notebooks to London. My sister said I had to go and buy a new outfit to go to the bank. <laughs> <laughs> and 
she wore a suit and off we went. And they looked at these books and they looked at the Wonder Bag. And two weeks later, they flew two of the engineers to South Africa, to wow. Orange Farm, to check my calculation. And they said, you've got a carbon project here. So I was at, this was such fantastic news because in my heart, Jared, I knew that the Wonder Bag had been given to me. It wasn't, mm -hmm. and I still feel that very much. It's the most amazing product, and I'm so grateful to have it. But it was, and I don't want to get too woo-woo here, but, you know, I feel it's been something that was given to me by the universe right. um, right. as a tool for global change and to, um, to shift the status quo of women and poverty across the world. And suddenly now I'm told that it can earn carbon credits, which means that we can really scale it. Mm -hmm. But what they didn't tell me is the nightmare to get carbon credits. <laughs> so there began a long journey. So what I'm just going to stop for a minute and give everybody a moment to breathe is to actually explain what a carbon credit is. Right. So a carbon credit is you have to prove to a standard. So there are different carbon credit standards. There is the CDM. So that was the clean development mechanism set up by the United Nations Framework for Climate Change. And then you have the VCS, which is a voluntary carbon standard. Then you have a gold standard and various other ones. Um, there's a European cap and trade. So there's different standards right. and they are extremely regulated. Um, and so what, what carbon credit actually is, it's measured in tonnage. And what you as a carbon credit originator, like I'm a carbon credit project, mm -hmm. so I have to prove that one ton of something that you can't see, yeah. you can't touch, you can't feel, has been saved. <laughs> so that's, if you think of it as a massive ton in a balloon shape, I have to prove that I've saved a one ton of CO2. And how you do that very simply is if you think about a fire and if you want to cook some pan beans, you have a big pile of firewood, okay? And you bring the fire to the boil, uh, you, you, you make the fire and you put the pot on the fire. Right. And now you're boiling these beans, the sump and the beans. And as the wood finishes, you put more wood and you put more wood and you put more wood. And, and eventually that pile of wood goes down and finishes. And so you measure that wood and that wood then gets calculated 
of how much CO2 would be released, okay, in the burning process. Now we measure how much wood has been saved by bringing the pot to the boil for 10 minutes, putting it in the bag, and then you measure the wood that hasn't been burnt. And the difference is the amount of carbon that has been saved. Does that do you understand what a carbon credit That's is? The most incredibly straightforward and simple answer that I've heard. Um, and I haven't read anything on the internet as simple as, as what you've just explained now. So <laughs> that was perfect. So that's very simply what yeah. a carbon credit is. Yeah. Now you have the challenge. And this is where I believe the genius that Time magazine spoke about. Is, is the genius of our business. I mean, the bag in itself is genius. I mean, it cooks by magic mm-hmm. and all of that. But actually, is by actually generating carbon credits, one household by household, you are able to then impact and scale that out and supporting the people most affected by right. climate change. Right. And that's where the data comes in because every single wonder bag has a serial code. So I know where every, we have about three and a half million bags, Mm -hmm. almost 4 million bags in homes right now. And we know where all those bags are because they are registered bags in a data system. All of our carbon bags, we have carbon bags and non-carbon bags. So our retail bags, you will pay between 400 rand and, um, mm. and uh, or $50 or whatever, it, wherever you're buying it in the world because that's a non-carbon bag. Right. So in order to, to get carbon credits, you have to prove that the person using the bag could not have afforded to buy it at, a pri- at the price that it's manufactured at. So we have to subsidize the bag to a price that is affordable. Right. And I believe that um, that is one of the big issues with aid is just giving things away because that takes away choice from people. And everybody wants to choose what they want. It doesn't matter what your economic status is. I do not want to be given yeah. something for free that i don't want it's, it has the opposite effect it does dispowers you almost. Abs- yeah so jared yeah. coming back to the data yeah do you know that bags that are given away for free mm. are have a 50 percent usage if somebody pays 20 rand for a bag or five dollars or a dollar or a sack of potatoes is a 93% chance they'll use it. Wow. Yeah. That's what choice and respect and dignity does. Yeah. So that's, you can understand (laughs) that as much as I'm passionate about people and the empowerment of people, that's what drives me. That's what has, I think it's because of that that I've been able to endure the pain thresholds that I've had to endure the Mm -hmm. past 14 or maybe 51 years, but anyway, we won't talk about that. Um, is my passion 
to leave the world differently to the world that I was born into. And I had to find a business model that would support the vision and passion that I had. And so the carbon credit business model is a model that makes sense. It's um, the world has to go carbon neutral. South Africa is seriously ahead of its game in that they brought in a carbon tax last year. Mm -hmm. And Wonderbag has signed the largest voluntary offtake agreement in South Africa. Um, And that means that we can roll out millions of wonder bags to people that want them across our country and across Africa. So that is the carbon side of the business. It's not simple, but it's, if you are passionate about it and you're committed to it, um, and and luckily I'm passionate and I have a team of incredibly passionate Mm -hmm. people that have allowed me to develop the most extraordinary app that we can sit at a dashboard and actually see how the bags are being used, how many tons of carbon we've got, and um, and to be able to communicate with all of our consumers. Right. So it's been a, a yeah, it's been an amazing journey bringing in kind of the passion of a social entrepreneur with uh, with data with the top end of technology so you see what i'm saying mm, it, mm, it mm. all has worked together to to bring me to the point where we are now i understand you you grew up on a farm in in kwazulu natal um you already you know mentioned a, a little bit about that but can you paint up listeners a picture of what life was like as a young Sarah collins sure it's really funny because I'm sitting here looking out the window on the very farm I grew up on wow. in my dad's office. <laughs> and I'm looking at the field where um, my ponies used to graze and I used to have jumps. Um, and I was a passionate horse rider. Um, and so I'm sitting actually just looking out the window at the same fence poles that were there. It's one of those full circle moments. <laughs> I know, isn't it? It's amazing. Just the, the significance of it just suddenly hit me. You know, I grew up in a very um, confused world. And I think many of us that are um, my age, um, growing up in apartheid South Africa, no matter where uh, or who you were in South Africa, um, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, it was an incredibly difficult time mm-hmm. and it was an incredibly confusing time for children born into it. You know, it's very strange because I spoke Zulu before I spoke English. Wow. So even though um, I am, I'm, I'm an English-speaking South African, I actually... Uh, my first mother tongue was Zulu, and that shows the um, the confusion of, of of my childhood, in the sense that we were actually my best friends and my caregivers right. were the people who looked after us and our their children 
And that's where we learn to speak Zulu. So mm -hmm. I was saying Gizali with Zulu Mina because I learned the traditional um the, the traditional games and, and the humor of the Zulu elders. And I was brought up on the on a nanny's back. Yeah. And um and the South Africa of those days, parents were very involved with with playing tennis and socializing and you know, and, and I'm not going to beat about the big push because I, I'm honest. I mean, yeah. we grew up in a colonial colonial setting and it was deeply disturbing for me because mm -hmm. it was a chaotic home of, um, of uh, very mixed messaging. So the people that loved me the most were our, um, the Zulu people who were part of our household. Yeah. But what I never understood is why I slept in Egyptian cotton linen and my friend slept on a mat around a fire. Right. And I don't know what it was about me that um, I, I couldn't accept it. And I couldn't accept that, um, that there were different rules for different people. Mm -hmm. And also, I grew up in a very patriarchal home. So boys and girls were very different. And, you know, I had to wear a dress to go into the dining room. And I wasn't very keen on dresses, you know. So if you wanted to have dinner with the grown-ups, you, mm -hmm. um, if you were invited, um, you know, you had to dress and behave a certain way. And that didn't suit me much either. So, um, you know, growing up where boys were more important than girls, where different cultures and and um, our caregivers and the people I played with and loved had different sets of rules. I was a very confused little girl. And so at about eight, I sort of packed my bags and, and moved in um, with, with Nora and Jeffrey and their children. And my horses and... and um, and uh, and the gardeners and the people that that loved and brought joy became really my family. Mm -hmm. And um, so there were difficult years, but I also have a lot of gratitude for the freedom that that I had in the farm and that I had horses and animals and um, and we could ride bareback across the fields. But I was a deeply thought. I think introverted child and um and so things weighed heavily on my heart yeah and so yeah. I started becoming very problematic to my parents because I started to say that's not okay and I'm not doing it that way yeah. and I started to sell vegetables at the side of the road to raise money for um things that I thought money should be spent on in terms of buying you know, presents or not presents, but like school shoes and, and yeah, things, you know, yeah. I started to show the signs of, of an entrepreneur. My brother also, we grew up in a very entrepreneurial home. Okay. My father was a, a businessman. We used to go before school, we used to go to the building sites and dad would make us um, count the bricks. <laughs> and we, our breakfast would be on a shovel with burrows on the wow. fire that the workers were eating and that was our breakfast. Yeah. 
Um, so that had a very, uh, we were brought up humbly in, in, in a lot of senses. Yeah. Um, so it was, as, a, as you can hear, it was a confused, yeah. um, you know, upbringing. But um, so from that, I started to really, I think that, that formed the, the backdrop of, of what was to come. And by the time I was 14 in a private school, girls' school, you know, um, wearing the suits and, you know, as, as one did, um, I couldn't accept that I was in a school and I didn't understand the language of, of the Afrikaans, which was the language of the oppressor. And right. so I said to my father, I have to go to an Afrikaans school and I need to go to understand who the Bruderbond is and what is actually going on. And my father was horrified. So, so you, so you, I just want to make sure I understood this. So you were in an English speaking girl school and you deliberately asked your father, can I go to an Afrikaans speaking school because I need to understand Afrikaans and, and how the psychology of, um, yeah. you know, the, wow, wow. I wanted to understand the language of the suppressors. I wanted to understand their mindset. My father looked at me absolutely <laughs> horrified. And um, he said, but I mean, you're at school. I said, that doesn't matter. Yeah. I want to go to an Afrikaans school, government school. And anyway, he said, well, it's most unusual, but what do you want me to do about it? I said, you must phone the Minister of Education and make it happen. And he went, Okay. So I went to a school called Furtrekker School. Wow. <laughs> and um, I became friends with all these right-wing Afrikaans people. And, I mean, I was terribly disruptive because, you know, in, in the school, you know, there was no loud music. It was right, not right. to question the Onobasa and all of this. I could hardly speak a word of Afrikaans. And so suddenly I started to challenge the teachers and asking them questions. But most importantly, I got into the homes of, 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 of Afrikaans homes and started to speak to the parents and listen carefully to the language and to understand the thinking of how people could think what was happening was okay. And, um, once I had finished that in Standard 8, I, I became very political. Yeah. I, then, um, I, I then wrote a, a document on, um, on the Bruderbond, which got um, circulated. And obviously, you can understand that that wasn't very, very uh, uh, okay in those days. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, and then I started to um, go to political rallies where P.W. Boerter was talking about, um, you know, reform, yes, and surrender, no. Oh, right. And I would stand on my chair and say, well, you say reform, yes, and surrender, no. But exactly who are you not surrendering to? Because I was trying to make them say the word ANC. Yes. Because you know it was banned in those days. Anyway, so I ended up in the back of police vans, and um, 
and so started my my roller coaster ride of police stations and um, my father having to bail me out. I've still got the article of the front page of the Natal witness saying prominent business daughter arrested <laughs> you know, at the age of 15. And um, I was at that time spending a lot of time in London, yes. sleeping outside South Africa House and um, and joining the ranks of the um, the ANC in London. I, I, I used to hide ANC books in the library at, at our school. <laughs> So so wait so so at at age fifteen or sixteen you were you were a card carrying member of the the ANC. Well, ah! I, mean, I don't know if they would have had cards back then, but but you were part of a political party. Flat like, out, wow. Flat out. <laughs> and I used to I used to um, bring uh, books and things through. Um, you know, in those days, Jan Smuts, and I was wearing my pearls and twin sets, and nobody would have thought I was bringing literature back from London. <laughs> anyway, um, so that really, that those formative years were the years where I really, I suppose, defined what I am today, which was a economic and social activist. Mm -hmm. and, and, um, and I, then, you know, my story goes on, but I, I then went to England and and lived over there and then came back and finished university care. Um, and then, but but my, I've never had a job or anything like that. Right. I've always, I've always been driven by a, 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 an inner compass to change this, change the way things are for women in Africa. So everything that I've done has been a social enterprise. Yeah. And um, and I also realized, though, that business drives change. And every woman on the African continent is, or actually I think most women across the world are entrepreneurs. And, um, and I, that's not excluding men, uh, but I'm just talking about, you yeah. know, woman here is is that um women are especially in Africa are are left to fend for their children. And we know that um in the old days men were taken to the mines and things. So women were left to fend for themselves. So I was looking for ways that um I've always been looking for um businesses that create um opportunities and are enablers for entrepreneurial opportunities on a big scale. So I spent 10 years in the Okavango Delta in Botswana. Um, uh, we started, a friend started the first horse safari business and um, where right. we hired women. And then, um, and then I actually uh, joined up with the, the big, Great biggest community on the outskirts of the Okavang, and we tended and won our own concession. I wasn't even 30 then. So that was a very big, big thing. And um, so I think if I had to give you a simple answer about who is Sarah Collins, I suppose it's quite hard to put your finger on it. Um, I laugh too loudly. I probably <laughs> I have... Uh, I've lived a, a wild life. Mm -hmm. I've lived a life 
galloping across horseback. I've lived a life of of pain, a lot of pain. Um, there was a lot of pain in my my early years. Um, and I think um, I ended up as an alcoholic. Wow. And um, I got sober in 2005. Oh, I've been sober for 15 yeah. years. Yeah. First time I've ever admitted that. In oh, th thank you for sharing. Wow. But that's, yeah, we may as well say it all because yeah. that's what it is. So I think the pain of the world that I was living mm. in and the, the realities of, of my situation um, triggered an alcoholic gene in me. And so mm -hmm. even though I was a functioning alcoholic and I, you know, in the Okavango, I had almost 800 people working for me. Right. And when I turned 30, I, um, I used alcohol to suppress those feelings because deep inside me, I was an incredibly sensitive person that mm -hmm. found living in, in the reality too hard. But by the grace of my higher power and mm -hmm. um, the re I think because I needed to, my job was not done, I ended up um, getting sober at, at 35. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it was the greatest, that, that to me is one of the greatest gifts I've ever been given because it made me at 35 really analyze who I was yeah. and, and surrender to this extraordinary person I was that I'd hated for so long because right. I taught that I wasn't good enough, that mm -hmm. I, I can't run a business, that, you know, women can't do this and can't do that. And by actually taking a, a time out of my life at 35, I was able to just stop and say, what is important and who is this person and what is this person going to do with their life? And I made a very profound decision when I decided that I was going to um, never drink again yeah, and to yeah. live a life that was not governed by alcohol or by addiction. I wanted to live the most extraordinary life that any human being could and be the biggest change agent mm -hmm. or otherwise I would drink myself yeah. off the planet. And, um, and I've been able to manage to stick to that and, and to, and to live each day as I set out to um, those in that October of 2005. Mm -hmm. For me, it's about it's about having purpose in life, and right, right. you know, I have dedicated my life to to my passion of of commitment of to change the world and to change it from from the pain of the world that I came into, and I think that that is what has kept me going. If you have a purpose in your life and you truly believe and you truly know. I think that that is what that 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 overrides everything, and once you open yourself up to those opportunities, those opportunities come your way. Yeah. And yeah. Um, yeah. 
Sarah, look, I mean, thank you so much for sharing so honestly about that. I mean, it's incredibly difficult to to talk about things like that. So I I really do appreciate it. And what you're saying about purpose, it makes so much more sense to me now. Um, interestingly, I on an interview with one of our other guests, uh, I'd asked him the question about you know setting goals and milestones for himself as the founder of a business because you know when you when you're doing something like this. Unlike maybe other careers, there's not this path to progression where you, you kind of have these little boxes to tick along your journey. And his response was, he didn't like thinking about goals and milestones, but rather his focus was on on purpose. And and like you said, you know, it seems to me like it's purpose is, is really what we should be focusing on on a on a personal level because if you have purpose, it it's what gets you through those those difficult times. So. Yeah, I mean that's that's just really really um, humbling. I think to to hear you share so so honestly about that. So thank you very much. You know, Jared, it's interesting when you say about purpose because then you look at what does purpose actually mean. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so for me, if you had to ask me what has been the greatest gift of of the last fourteen years of of Wonderbag, has been the people, mm-hmm. the most extraordinary people. And to see the entrepreneurs that have taken the opportunity that Wonderbag has, Wonderbag is not the the solution to everything. Wonderbag is a catalyst for change. So it's really, the Wonderbag gives people a key to opportunity. Mm -hmm. It gives them back more time. It gives them back, um, it gives them back um, some extra money into their home. It also creates a, a community, so it creates a, a belonging. I think so many of us, and especially today, and we spoke about this before the podcast started, is the sense of belonging to something. Right. And so many of us have been removed from what the communities that we belong to, or um, uh, you know, so much has happened in this world. There's been a massive move towards urbanization of the promised land where there's money. So there's been a lot of people across our world that have been um, dislocated from where they're mm-hmm. actually their birthplaces. Yeah. And and then you start to question, who am I? And 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 do I deserve to be? Right. Uh, um, uh, do I deserve greatness? Do I deserve to have a job? Do I deserve to have children? Mm-hmm. Do I deserve to be part of this world? And I think that that is is really um, from what Wonderbag is about, and what what I've always aspired is to to give people or or to have. I mean, the gratitude I have for a Wonderbag in that I can offer an, uh, something that is a catalyst for other things. Right. So when we look at Wonderbag. You know, the the bag in itself is, is cooks amazing meals, but it's actually what what Wonder Bag has done for communities across right. our world and um and is continuing to do. And that's peop allowing people to take opportunities for themselves. I mean, we have over two hundred thousand entrepreneurs that wow. are now running successful businesses that's of their own. Yeah. Those children are in their children are in school. Mm-hmm. They are um 
they have created opportunities for other people. Um, and we also look at, at the moment, um, COVID has had such a big impact on, on the lives and, and the mindsets of people and this sort of sense of there's no hope and, yeah. and where do we belong and our worlds have become smaller. And I am, am seeing such amazing shift in the communities that we are mm. working with with Wonderbag regarding this because we have we have now decided to take the manufacturing of Wonderbag into the communities so that people don't have to go to work in places where they've got to leave their children behind. Right. Right. You know, so we're creating opportunities for people to manufacture Wonderbag in the communities where they live. And our early childhood development um, infrastructure of South Africa has collapsed. And so that generation, we are losing a generation of, of young children because they're not being fed. And their mothers have got not, uh, have not got um, a money. And there is this desperation for people under the age of six years old and their parents. And so what Wonderbag has done is we've actually gone in and started manufacturing around what were ECD centers, and we are trying to help reignite those. And um, and then by distributing Wonder Bags via our carbon credit model, we can sell a Wonder Bag at 20 Rand or 50 Rand. Right. And then the, the ECD center can earn some of that money to restart um, their support systems for parents. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's through sheer tenacity of the communities and ourselves and our partners that we can make this change. And I think that's what purpose is. It's about creating opportunities for other people. And it's not about, um, you know, Yes, obviously, I have my own personal North Star, and one of my big lessons is, is that I have to look after myself, right. and um, right. and I have to take care of myself because I'm so busy taking care of the rest of the world mm -hmm. that I that I forget. And you know, I've had um, a number of illnesses because you know there's been this culture of busyness. You've always right. got to be right. busy and take on too much, and and I think that's a big big lesson that one needs to um, share with people is that the culture of busyness is gone. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. that what we have to look at as we go forward is defining what kind of leader do you want to be? Yeah. And what kind of organization do you want to walk into the new era, the new world post 2020, you know? And I think that the exciting challenge for me is to see how to work within the world that is presented to us. Mm -hmm. And and that world is a world of constant change, um, constant innovation, um, absolute uncertainty. But we can be certain within ourselves and be certain within our communities of the of of what we are setting out to achieve. And um, and I think that for me, the, 
the great um, feeling I have of of where we're going to is is going into the future of a world that we can all take care of ourselves right. as communities and as with care. Yeah. And and I think that care and kindness are really and safety are really words that have to come to the fore and um, with global leadership mm. and and not whitewashed yes words but actually honest um equity for the environment equity for humanity and um, you know equal opportunities and that for me is 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 creating this global world where we are all interconnected and again i'm so lucky to have the wonder mm, bag mm, because mm, mm. when people buy a wonder bag and they know that a part of that wonder bag is um is being donated to a family yep. where who will, which will get a wonder bag and we talk about offsetting carbon credits you know global corporations no longer want to offset with carbon that is you know doing something which you can't see is not affecting communities yeah, people yeah. want to offset their carbon and be responsible companies whilst creating employment creating opportunities whilst supporting global women mm-hmm. and and um, Wonderbag is one of the carbon um offset projects that actually has an impact of every single sustainable development goal and we can claim that because it's yeah. it's reality our yeah. data tells us that so we've created this amazing opportunity for global corporations to say hey we want to own our own project to wonderbag mm-hmm. we want to offset the our our um our carbon footprint by getting a wonder bag into every home in Malawi yeah, how yeah. cool would that be is that if every corporation or every polluter or every um uh company you know tech company that has these huge data banks and right. they suddenly said but we want to we don't just want to offset with some you know unseen project we want to we want to be able to talk about the people who are benefiting from mm-hmm. the carbon credits that we bought so i think very simply what i'm doing is 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 bringing together global businesses environmental honesty and right. and um and change and the humanitarian world so that triangle is the magic that is happening within the world of of wonderbag yeah. and it really is magic um certainly as as i'm sitting here i'm i'm incredibly inspired by by what you're saying for any young women that are listening to the show um I, i'm going to ask a question and and before i ask the question i've got a caveat this so obviously i'm a male and I've got to acknowledge that there's no way and that I can fully understand or relate to, you know, the issues that, that women face. 
Samadhi, lying on you also to hold me accountable here in, in asking this question. <laughs> I was chatting to my wife, um, you know, ahead of today's podcast, and in case she's listening, so, so my wife is is this super intelligent, strong, like incredibly qualified, successful woman. Um, and one of the questions that, that came up is, as a strong and, and successful woman operating in this male-dominated patriarchal society and this corporate world, particularly for you when you're actively trying to empower other women, you know, how do you turn off that nagging voice that maybe says to you, or maybe it is an actual voice that says to you, you don't belong in the space or you're not good enough or you shouldn't kick up too much of a fuss about something because that's just, it's going to ruffle feathers and, and actually, you know, rather just sit quietly in the, in the back of the boardroom and, you know, let, let things slide. To, to all the young women listening, how do you move past that? How do you overcome that? You know, Jared, driving up here, I was thinking about this podcast and I was thinking um, in your notes that you had touched on that point. And I was wondering if I was going to give you an answer that you expect to hear or give you my true answer. Well, so let's, let's go with the true answer. <laughs> Sadly, there's only truth with me. So if you wanted like a nice speech from a woman entrepreneur, yeah. you're not going to get it. <laughs> I've never considered myself any different. Right. The rhetoric's been there. I, 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 um, I, I've always known. But I actually have never considered myself a woman entrepreneur. I've mm -hmm. considered myself. As, as somebody on a mission. Right. And, um, and the fact that I'm a woman made no difference. I, I probably, by saying that, I probably have taken, been far too hard on myself because when things haven't come about as I've, I've hoped, I thought I was the failure. I was cross that I don't have a chartered accounting degree because maybe I could have done my spreadsheets better when the bank sort of wasn't terribly interested. I never for a minute considered that it was because I was a woman. Right. And the only time it became full in my face was last year when a, a bank said to me, you know, we really want to join you on this project because we can get points by backing you. What? And I said, what are you talking about? And they said, oh, well, you know, if we invest in women businesses, we get points. I said, you are joking. So you want to invest in me, but not because of how fantastic this mm. and the impact that this business is doing, but because I'm a woman. I said, you are. I said, I'm so horrified. And he went, but what do you mean? It's a really good thing. And I said, but then it's not. <laughs> and suddenly this shattering moment happened for me that people saw me as a woman. Yes not just as a business person yeah, yeah. or that like these amazing things that was happening within the Wonder Bag world. They were actually thinking of me as a woman so that I was different. And I was like, no. And I nearly dropped a bad word. I was like, <laughs> no way. This is not happening. Yeah. Yeah. And so what what my advice is and I I and I've put I'm putting money where my mouth is actually. Right, because right. I have made the decision that my business is going to be run by the next generation now. So I'm hiring right at this moment 
I'm hiring young people of the age of between 20 and and 25 Mm -hmm. out of high school, graduates, first year out of university, and um, men and women, because they are young people are looking for a different way of life. They didn't come, they don't look at it as being going through the same corporate world that their parents. They want to be part of the future. They want to be making an impact in their world. So whether you're a chemical engineer, I've got an engineer, I've got an attorney, I've got all different people, Mm -hmm. like 21, 22, and they are running projects now for us because they think differently. So I don't care if you're a man or a woman. Yeah. Believe in yourself and believe that you can make the difference. And what I will tell you that every single person on this planet can make a difference. What has to change is the way you perceive yourself. And I have suffered terribly Mm. from a lack of self-esteem. I did not believe I was good enough, but I faked it until I made it. And I just kept saying, there's a reason that you're still here, Sarah. And it is the young people and the people around me who have astounded me that have made me realize that actually I'm making a difference Mm -hmm. and that my world, is, my life is worth living because of what I've seen in other people. And I think that that's just, if every single person listening to this could do something different today, whether it is taking a cup of tea to their grandmother or making somebody smile or just delivering a bunch of flowers to somebody who hasn't had somebody drop off a bunch of flowers at their whatever. Whatever it is, see how that makes you feel. Mm -hmm. And when you feel how that makes you feel, then you'll know that you can be the difference in the world. And whether it's just in your small community, whether it's just for your partner or just for your two-year-old child, it doesn't matter. But I implore people not to define themselves by being a man or a woman. Define yourself as being a human and being authentic to who you are. Don't ever let people take away the specialness of who you are. Do you know that I have probably my most success is when I sit in what I call pearl power. And that is in my feminine power. I think that having to emulate men is what people mistook in the 80s when we were wearing those padded jackets and (laughs) You know, the real, like, I can be a man stuff. And, you know, when I'm just quietly and gently in myself and sitting in my honest and true feminine power is, and my my feminine comfort is when people listen the most, when I'm trying to be somebody else or trying to be forceful, people switch off because they don't want to hear that. So I think if if I could leave a message for anybody um, in terms of your question around women, 
is be authentic in whoever you are and and that authentic power of being your true self is what attracts and leads people with you and who and and brings people to walk the journey with you and that's it up on this week's episode thank you so much for listening if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to this podcast to make sure you don't miss out on the next one if you'd like to help support the podcast please do share with others and leave a rating and review this has been the breaking out podcast and i've been your host jared lazar until next time Here's a note from Sarah about how to support or get involved with Wonderbag. So, um on Wonderbag World, so www.wonderbagworld.com, there are all sorts of opportunities there of purchasing a bag, of buying carbon, of offsetting your carbon footprint, of partnerships, of um volunteering, of applying for jobs. we are expanding and scaling across the globe and we also do a lot of um uh work with mba students with different universities with schools um so we really are yeah i mean you'll get a lot of um and just write to write to us and uh we'll find somebody will respond and um and i'm i'm always there to have a conversation and to connect